This is a Federal News Network podcast. One of the weirder federal IT developments of recent years is how slowly agencies are using a government-wide telecom contract that's supposed to be mandatory. It's the Enterprise Information Solutions Multiple Award Program operated by the General Services Administration. For some facts and figures and why this might be happening, we turn to federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And Larry, I think one of the most interesting statistics you cite compiled by Bloomberg is how popular the old program that EIS is supposed to replace still is. Tom, that's exactly right. Looking at the numbers For fiscal year 21, the networks contract, which is done and finished, and EIS is replacing it, networks did 86% of the amount of business that EIS did. So there was really only a very little difference between EIS and networks in terms of total business in FY21. That shows that it remained a popular contract. Now, I think the authority to keep extending business out for networks is going to go away, but Clearly, agencies and contractors, frankly, are looking at networks and saying, you know, in today's environment, when we can't really invest in new technology and Congress isn't giving us funds to start something new, we're going to go with what we know and what we know is networks. Well, yes, Congress may not be giving new money or they may not all have access to the technology modernization fund, but IT is still a $100 billion tab for the government. So there's money for a lot of stuff. Not only, Tom, is there money to do this in the budget, Congress has also directed federal agencies to transition away from networks. It's one of the evaluation points in the FATARA scorecard The scorecard, most recent one, just came out about a week or so ago, and the area where agencies got the lowest grades across the board was in FATARA transition, was in EIS transitioning. This shows that agencies just are really resistant to move to EIS, despite congressional oversight and recommendations that they do so, despite the carrot and stick approach that GSA is taking in encouraging agencies to transition. Uh, It's a conundrum. And in the meantime, contractors that bid on EIS and have this contract must be wondering, what do I have to do to recoup the millions of dollars in bid and proposal costs that I sunk to getting EIS in the first place so that I can actually begin to make a profit here? Isn't this similar, though, to the phenomenon we saw when Networks itself was established? And it was kind of confusing. They had a universal version and a some other kind of version, enterprise version, and nobody understood the difference between the two. And that was replacing, I think, one of the uh, old FTS contracts. And that took several years of transition. Right. So what you're saying, Tom, is exactly right. We've seen from FTS 2001 to Networks a slow transition Congress had to get involved in that time and really put the hammer down on agencies. And then from uh, networks to EIS, we've seen a problem. What I would say, while the problem of transition itself has been similar from contract to contract, I've seen it getting progressively slower over time. And I think that calls into question about the viability of a large standalone telecommunications contract uh, in the federal market. Agencies obviously aren't wild about having to spend money to upgrade their systems, even though their security benefits, functionality benefits, a whole slew of things they get from doing the upgrade. 
uh, but they're just not doing it. At least they're not doing it very quickly. And every time GSA puts a new telecom contract into place, it's getting slower and slower to kick over to the new contract. I just wonder whether or not we've seen the end of large telecommunications contracts in government and the time for agencies to go out and maybe do their own thing according to their own needs. Well, also true is the fact that agencies feel that they can give better client customer service by upgrading their applications online and fixing their software. And that's not exactly, so it's not strictly necessary to upgrade the network to deliver better service if you have better applications and better software. Well, you've hit on something major here, Tom, and that is the change in technology and the change in how federal agencies use that technology. We don't really use our phones as much in the conduct of government business these days. A lot of that's been driven by the pandemic, but I'm not sure that even were the pandemic to vanish overnight, that everybody would go back to using their phones and telecommunications devices the way they did three years ago. The number of Zoom calls we do uh, every day, the number of other calls on similar platforms that we do every day, these have generally replaced conference calls, phone calls, things of that measure. If agency officials are using a phone, it's more frequently going to be their official cell phone, uh, particularly if they're working remotely, as so many of them continue to do. So the reality of how people use telecommunication services changed right at the exact time that EIS came online. And that's another thing that I think is driving slow transition Agencies are upgrading their IT, but they're upgrading their IT to use software-based telecommunications platforms that really aren't part of the EIS contract. I guess what we need next is push to talk for Zoom, and then you'd really have something. We're speaking with Larry (laughs) Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and you're also writing that the uh, change to zero-trust architecture and the latest detailed strategy on that from the Biden administration is a business opportunity. And explain how, because the first thing people always say is, well, you can't buy zero trust. It's something you architect and design. Uh, So therefore, it's not a product. There's no zero trust in a blue or red box. There's no box for zero trust, Tom. But I think increasingly, federal contractors are going to have to show how the solutions that they're proposing are zero trust based. Uh, Look at this really as uh, a a step forward from what we saw with the cloud when cloud first came in the federal market. Suddenly everybody had to have a cloud solution. Uh, All cloud solutions look different from each other, particularly in the early days. Uh, Then we got FedRAMP to make sure that everybody offering cloud had a common set of standards they had to meet. I kind of look at the zero trust memorandum as a step in the direction of what agencies are going to be requiring of themselves and then by extension requiring of their contractors in order to meet the the administration's mandates. So while you're not going to see something that says this is a zero trust acquisition, you know, you're going to see it, I think, become an identifiable spend area, IT solutions with zero trust characteristics baked in. For contractors, I think that means it's an opportunity 
to show what they have in terms of these types of solutions, but it's also a challenge. If, for whatever reason, your company has been slow to the zero trust game, this is a heads up for you that, at least in terms of federal business, you better understand what this is. You better understand what uh, is required of you and what your competitors are doing. One federal agency just released a small but discreet zero trust pilot program immediately before the White House administration announcement came out. And it was called a zero trust pilot award. I think we're going to see a lot more zero trust labeled awards, regardless of what they might have under the hood. This is how they're going to be classified. And we're going to start seeing zero trust spending tracked at least by industry, if not officially by government. So are you saying GSA should rename EIS as Zero Trust? (laughs) Well, certainly that would uh, let them in with the hot thing of the day, Tom. All right. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.